This conversation is sponsored by Readers Fully Booked. This is what I know. We're all connected to one another, the Earth and all her inhabitants. We thrive on these connections, real ones that touch our soul, fill our hearts and invigorate our mind. I have been so fortunate to experience this all my life, meeting extraordinary, ordinary folks who inspire and provoke. My name is Khadija Mhesin. Welcome to Adventures of the Soul Conversations. My hope is that they will fill your cup as they have filled mine. My guest today is Larry McIlvain, a longtime friend and colleague. We first bonded many years ago over our shared admiration of the work of the sociologist and author Brené Brown. Her book, Daring Greatly, sparked many interesting kitchen counter conversations that have inspired our formal sit-down today. Larry has been the head of the American School Amman for the past 10 years. He is himself a product of international schools as the son of international educators spending his early years in Peru and middle years in Kabul, Afghanistan. His first international job was in Amman, Jordan, back in 1986. Larry knows more about the Middle East than I do, really. He has also worked in Moscow, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. He currently serves on the board of NISA, the Near East South Asia Council for International Schools. In this conversation, we talked about the changing role of schools and education today, We talked about human skills and humanizing learning, kindness, grit, homework, rigor, reading, standardized tests in the college admission process, and of course, well-being. But the first order of business was to ask him the question on everyone's mind. Okay, maybe not really everyone's, just mine. How is he not on social media? Everybody on social media thinks they have free voice. There's no accountability for what they say. Um, everybody has an opinion about everything. And in, in my role as a head of school, uh, that's really dangerous. So I, I have a, I have a um, Twitter account that, that, you never use. that I seldom <laughs> use, though I'm thinking about starting again. Um, just to market the work we do, because I think it's great work. So you are admitting that social media has its advantages. It's just figuring out a balance. Yes, it has, for sure it has advantages, but it's, but it's the balance piece of what do you share, how much do you want to put yourself out there. I mean, we've, we've seen both the, the successes and the dangers of people who are on social media. And as an educator, Right, that's one of our biggest challenge now. Challenges now is trying to get students, kids, to understand that once it's out there, it's out there forever. Yeah, it's not easy. But I sense when you said that uh, you know people feel like they they have a free voice and they have no accountability. Do you think that only applies to social media, or is this across the board now? And are you leaning more toward authoritarianism? What people say on social media. Is heard by me. Very seldom would they ever say that same thing to somebody's face because it's, they don't think about it, they react, they don't take a breath, they don't wait. 
Um, it's, it's just a reaction to something. Um, am I leaning toward authoritarianism? That was a joke, but if you what want I'm to. Re what, I'm, what I'm striving for is responsibility and understanding and empathy and compassion. Do you think conventional education, the conventional education system is going to be obsolete? And if yes, how much time do we have? I, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be obsolete. It's already I think obsolete. it is obsolete. Um, and I think schools now are trying to catch up because it was, it was obsolete long ago, but be, because schools are comfortable places that are driven by routine and tradition, it's really hard to change the structure. So schools, aren't doing a great job, and I'm talking about most schools, of, of preparing kids for the world that they're headed into. And forget about preparing them for ninth grade or for 11th grade or for college. Prepare them for life. That's such a grim uh, view. Like, See, I look, at, I look at it as an exciting view. I, I look at it as, like these are the possibilities. And let's work with corporations and businesses to, to find out what they're looking for, right? And what they're, what they're looking for are not kids that get great grades. They're looking for kids and people and adults who can communicate and who can collaborate and who can problem solve and who understand global issues um, and who think, who think differently and creatively. I remember the first time I heard you speak, um, it was in 2011 and you, it was an orientation where you welcome new parents to school and um, you said, and you still say it I think every single year, that our job now is to figure out how to prepare students for jobs that um, probably will not exist by the time they graduate. So things are moving so fast and, and you still say that every single year. It's been now 2011, eight years. Are, you the, are you the only school thinking of this? No. The only educator thinking of this? No. Many, many, many schools are and many, many schools are doing some really, really innovative, uh, creative um, things in their schools. Um, you know, breaking down structures, breaking down time allocations, uh, thinking about what, what is the next five years going to look like. I showed last couple of weeks ago, I showed our staff um, a short clip from a BMW plant. And the clip was maybe four minutes long and there was not a single human being in the clip. It was all computerized, motorized, mechanized, robotized. Yeah, that's now what everybody's saying. I mean, Yuval Harari in his latest book was talking about how artificial intelligence and um, uh, machines are going to take over the world. So the only thing we have left as humans is human is emotional skills. And, you know, that's what we need to focus on. So we may have started with social media, but really our conversation was twofold. The aspirational world of education and the reality of the circumstances dictating and driving, even halting, education today. So, I'm, I always look at the aspirational piece. 
So right. we start let's, with let's that. Start, let's start with let's start with aspirations and what I'm assuming what schools could be, might be, what we want kids to look like. And the fact that schools don't work in a vacuum. School works schools work in, in like a, a complete environment where you have businesses, you have colleges, you have governments. There's a whole other environment that the schools work within. Expectation, expectations of parents, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And expectations of what parents think school should be. Because what I often hear is, well, this is how I went to school and look at me, I'm... I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I say that all the time. Um, I can punctuate and I can spell. <laughs> and I don't see there's a lot of emphasis on that or grammar skills or... Uh, but yeah, let's talk about aspiration. What is, in your opinion, um, the ideal outlook of how schools should operate or what schools need to focus on? What is the ideal student you wish to graduate? So the, so the ideal student will, will en encompass a set, of, a set of skills that they have to have to function, right? Because there's still the academic piece. You can't say how, that... How does this look, though? Now, we, we can get every possible amount of information online. So what's the academic, what, what does the academic piece look like in a, a great uh, uh, best-case scenario? Yeah, I, I think it's identifying some, some, core, some core set of skills. We, we've tried to do that with identifying some standards. Mm -hmm. Every student should be able to, mm -hmm. um, and, and they're not, um, not always very specific. Every student should be able to add two plus two, but they are skills of mathematical computation. So kids should be able to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Um, Why, though? Because I think those are, those are core skills that will help them function um, as, as, they build their, as they build their brain capacity, right, looking at problems. It used to be, um, and still is in many schools, that you would get a worksheet and there would be 50 questions of multiplication. Right now, and you would do it and you'd get it either right or wrong and you had you a formula. You passed multiplication. Right, and now it's looking at the conceptual piece, right, of, of using manipulatives and why, why, like, why two plus two? Why does it equal four? And so kids are starting to think at a higher level about their learning. Um, you know, and I've always, I've always said, it doesn't really matter what they, what they learn, um, like the stuff, the content, but it's how they use that content that, for me, is, is valuable. And so it's, so it's not just learning the information, but it's, it's applying that information to something that's relevant, preferably aspirational, relevant in their life, uh, which is challenging in schools because you have a classroom of 20 kids. They all are different. They come from different nationalities, languages, religions. But it comes back to the relevancy piece of how do you make learning relevant? For a student because that will grab them and interest them yeah and you always use the so i love this how to make learning relevant and by relevant you mean relevant to life mm -hmm. and then there's the piece of how to make learning irresistible we're still we're, st we're still talking aspirational yeah I, I think if kids if kids find whatever it is they're studying interesting they'll learn 
and they'll dig into it and they'll be curious and they'll want to know more about it and they'll try to find more information and they'll try to find people that are um, interested in the same kinds of topics and they'll make connections with them and they'll have conversations with them. So if kids are not interested in math, then in the aspirational world, they don't have to take math. No, 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 no. The aspirational world, they'll, they'll, they, have to, they have to have a core set of math skills, um, but then how they demonstrate that, how they um, are held accountable to it, could be in a hundred different ways and not sitting down at a test and doing 25 questions and giving it in and have a teacher grade it on a scale from A to F. Either so, you got it or you didn't. Okay, so in this aspirational scenario, um, these, you know, this is, uh, these kids are led and mentored by teachers who ideally should share your same outlook. But these teachers are like me. They grew up uh, under a conventional uh, um, education. In the best case scenario, how do you um, encourage and support and include the teachers in this aspirational scenario? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a, it's a challenge for all schools. I think um, it has a number of layers. The first one is who you hire, mm -hmm. right? Cause, because the most important person in a school is who you put in front of kids. And so it's who you hire and it's the conversations that you have before you hire them. Uh, and then I think it's part of it's just a retraining of, of teachers. And it's, and it's showing them uh, how a change in their teaching practice can change behaviors of kids. Because the days of I'm the teacher, I know everything, you're the student, I'm giving you all this information, it's over because it's there there's actually a, an app now that a student can take a picture of a math problem and the app will automatically solve that math problem for them excellent and so things like homework you know it's they all have to be rethought because it's access to information so a lot of the schools have shifted to uh, how do you access information uh, what do you do with that information and how do you know that information is real and accurate? So by the same argument, when we were talking about the, the rise of infotech and biotech and artificial intelligence, uh, really in the aspirational world, I don't know how aspirational that is, we don't need teachers, we need mentors. And, we need facilitators. Facilitators, mentors. yeah. Uh, who offer love and support. And let's face it, even us who grew up in a conventional setting, the teachers remember that most affected our lives were not the teachers who taught us calculus necessarily. They were the ones who supported us and instilled a sense of confidence in us. The, right? gre the greatest, the greatest um, skill that we, can, that we can leave, that kids can leave our schools with, uh, are the personal skills. Which because are? you can have the technology and you can have the robots but at, the, but at the end of the day, people have to sit down, they have to get along, they have to collaborate, they have to work together. Um, very, very few places um, in the world now are, are where people work in isolation. I mean, you have a team, one, two, three, four, five, six. You have a team of six people here. 
right? Without all of them working together, you can't do it. You can't do this. Lights wouldn't work, cameras wouldn't work, microphones wouldn't work, right? So it's that collaborative piece of people working together, solving problems. And that's the world, and that's the world that we have to help um, develop the skills for kids to go into. Forget your school for a moment, and when you go to education conferences and you meet colleagues, what is the percentage of people who buy into this and people who are resistant? Just a rough, I'm just curious to know what it's like in this private education, international work versus... Uh, I think people who go to the conferences that I go to, because the, uh, the speakers are published, the, uh, what's happening is published, that, that people I interact with are interested well, in the same, yeah. right? Or they wouldn't go. I mean, there are conferences, uh, the NISA conference is our big one, and there, there's, there are people from schools that are really interested in this work, you know, whether it's a cultural piece or a location piece, it's really hard for them because once you become a facilitator, uh, you, have, you have to lose a little bit of control. Um, you have to lose a little bit of, not lose, it's, it's less structured and it's less organized and it's, it's, uh, it, opens, it opens the opportunities for people to lose that, that control of, yeah. of a classroom. I see that. Hold that thought because we're coming back to this. Going back to the hiring. What is the, and then we'll go back to reality because I think we're going to spend most of our time on reality. What is the one question you ask in the interview process that makes or breaks a candidate? Hmm. I think there are a couple, there are, there are, I always, almost always, my first question in an interview with a teacher is, are you nice? And how do I know that you're nice? And are you nice to kids? And are you nice to your colleagues? And are you nice to parents? What's the most memorable answer you've received? I mean, what a question though. Because you're kind of, as, as you answer this question, you're just, you don't want to look like a pompous ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say ass, we, we could edit this. But you may look like, you know, you're arrogant. But for me, that's the, I think the, I think the best answer I've heard um, from, a, from a teacher, he, he gave me the email of two of his students and said, why don't, you, why don't you ask these people? Because I, I mean, everybody's going to say yes. Of course, I'm nice, and um, and I think for me that was the confidence of right. Ask the people I ask the people I work with every day. Did you? No. I like the aspirational because that's the world I live in. Right. I see the reality, um, but I'm always I'm always aspiring to something that I think is is more valuable for students and student learning. And I see that, and I pick that up, and I think we find each other. Um, just like you said, you know, the people who show up to these conferences are people who share the same, uh, you know, beliefs and values and, and, and goals and visions. And curiosities, because yes. a lot of this is the curiosities. And, and the courage to ask some very difficult questions and look at, and ask yourself some really difficult questions. Um, and. What worries me and what I've recently become aware of is this whole idea of confirmation bias where we surround ourselves with people who see our view, um, agree with us and we're not necessarily very open to those who differ from us.
and this is the segue into the reality of first of all you have uh, schools like uh, like yours is a, a small percentage of schools worldwide it's a tiny tiny percentage it's barely it's like a dot um, you can't work in isolation again eventually at some point you're gonna have to face the real world so you're uh, you're gonna have to deal with universities you're gonna have to deal with the workspace workplace with governments um, and this can you know translate into other things so uh, that's why we need to look at the reality of what we're in and how do we make a difference do we make a difference is my question do you think we make a difference yes how we, is that we definitely when you say we what is who's we uh, people who think like us <laughs> as we drown ourselves in our confirmation bias or the kids you know like the, the, the kids we uh, we invest in or the, the you know the the the, the learning we uh, we invest in I think we we make differences in our sphere of influence right and that's where you have to start mm -hmm. so um, with your work do you make a difference no doubt you do because you give people perspective you give people uh, different ways of thinking um, you know you ch you challenge assumptions you challenge what what currently exists I think in in the same way uh, we make a difference with our kids we and, and part of that's the preparation piece uh, we make a difference with our parents because we show them different ways and different ideas and you know I just think back to when you came you know, 20 was that 2012 maybe? 2011 yeah, 2011 um, I mean you, you've you've I'm assuming seen the school evolve over time and, and change and um, you know, I think about the kids that, that have left and come back. And no, I mean, no doubt we've made a difference. Um, you know, and for me, part of that is I think we've, they've left as more confident kids. Um, I think hopefully more grounded kids. ACS students apply their knowledge and understanding to make a positive difference in the world. They demonstrate personal traits of respect and integrity global awareness and reflective thinking. They are critical and analytical thinkers, creators and innovators, and effective communicators and collaborators. These traits make up the school's student profile. And what I often say, Gigi, is, right, if we, if we, if our students leave ACS and they have the best marks ever, but they don't represent our student profile, then we've failed as a school. And the parents should hold us accountable to that. And that's a bit counterintuitive because what parents want, I just want my kids to get good grades so they'll get into a great university. Uh, and what we know is no matter what your grades are, it doesn't guarantee you entrance into any university. It doesn't, but then you fall into, like I have two questions for you on that. One is I want to go into this whole idea, this whole world of, of standardized tests and college admissions and all that. But before we go there, um, how do you measure student, your student pro profile? And I'm not just talking about mm. ACS, I'm just talking in well, general. How do you measure emotional skills? How do you assess and, you know? Well, we actually, 
have a rubric. Okay. That, I trust that, you to have a rubric. That, that uh, outlines what that looks like. Um, and, and so for middle school kids and high school kids, and I'm just speaking for ACS because I really don't know what other schools do to measure it. Uh, teachers used to, like their advisory teacher, used to assess them on those skills. We're having the conversation now about why, like, why are we doing that? Because, it's, because what it requires is nothing of the student, no self-reflection, no thinking. Um, so we're looking at, let's put, this, let's put this back on the kids. Say, how are you, how are you um, exemplifying the student profile, each of these categories and criteria? And get them doing the self-reflective And is this working? Um, you know, to certain degrees. I mean, some kids take it more seriously than others. But for me, the, the power of it is like it's ingrained. It's ingrained in their thinking because they're self-reflecting on it. And it'll come back. It'll come back in the conversations. We'll come back a year, three, five, seven years down the road. Can you afford to wait this long? Can we afford to make mistakes? I would say we can't afford not to. Okay. I mean, we can't afford not to make, because it's, because if we're not, um, the only way not to make mistakes is to do nothing. True. Right. And so you have, like, you have to try and you have to test. And I mean, that's, that's the way the world is. You have to be in right? the arena. You, you, you ha yeah, you have to, and there will be people who criticize and there will be people who question and, you know, but at the end of the day, um, the only way not to make mistakes is to do nothing, okay. right? And I mean, again, it's, it's uh, the word failure has such a bad connotation, um, but that's what, what, what we should be doing is assessing student failure and building on that. Stop using the word failure because I think it has so many bad connotations, but making errors and problem solving and going, wow, that didn't work very well. And, um, you know, the, these six people in this room, there was a problem with this cord, right? They tried four different things to fix it. Is that design thinking? Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's most basic. raw, yeah, it's the most basic <laughs> form, right? There's a problem. Yeah. So how do we fix it? Yeah. Like, we have a problem. What's the problem? How do we fix it? Did we fix it? Great. Did we fix it as best we can? Under the circumstances. Maybe not, right? Um, and if not, let's go back and redo it again, right? So, so that, for me, that's the whole learning piece. That's what schools should be providing every, every, at every age level and every student. And for me personally, I find that harder than being forced to sit down and solve a math problem because you just don't know where you're going. There's like the unknown and uh, the, it's just harder versus, you know, memorizing what you need to do and the steps you need to take to go there. Yeah, and what, and what Gigi, in your life is more realistic though, that, that, that you have two plus two is four. I mean, very little in my life. None, uh, I, I I know, you know, the answer to. No certainty. Very, very, very little certainty. I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of schools all over the world doing really interesting work. Yeah, but in, are they... In helping kids prepare. Yes. 
are they part of the public system, the public sector? You know, honestly, I don't know enough about public schools in America to speak intelligently about that. Um, I, I don't know, know the, enough. I think the backlash, the, the backlash you see from, you know, corporations, businesses, um, and, and emerging research is that the model of education used to prepare workers is not working. It worked. Right? That model worked. For the kind of worker we needed 20 years ago yeah. and 50 years ago. And now now it, it's, it's not adequate. So I had a really interesting conversation with um, a head of a corporation um, who informed me that their establishment, along with others, are working on um, founding academies that train and develop skills for uh, uh, university graduates because the university graduates they're getting are not what they need. Corporations, um, what, what, what they know is they're, they're going to have to retool people who come to work anyway because they have certain ways that they set things up or their factories. So what, what they want, what they're looking for are people who have traits that will help them be successful in their company instead of the necessary skills that they may be coming out of schools with. That are so, probably for example, going to be, that will be replaced by robots. So example, Siemens, Siemens, and this was years ago, I don't know if it's still their mantra, but Siemens would say we hire for traits and we train for skills. And by traits they mean emotional skills. Yes. I mean, not just emotional skills. I think I, don't, I mean I don't know if you call you know working. I don't know if you call collaboration. Uh, of course, uh, it is an That's emotional skill. But it's so. Why wouldn't so, you call it an emotional skill? So I could so I could graduate. I'll come back to that. So I could graduate uh, with a degree in engineering from University of Michigan. Uh, if Siemens hires me, they're going to train me again to do what they want me to do in their way and they can that's the, the that training is easy right because if I graduated with a degree in engineering I have the court knowledge but what they can't do is train people to collaborate and uh, to problem-solve and to be nice and to be nice to each other and empathetic and compassionate and, um, I want to talk about standardized tests and then we'll go back uh, so you're not so focused on the grades, you're more focused on the soft skills. No, we're focused on the learning. The learning. Okay, yeah, so wait, 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 let's define. The learning. Let's define learning and education and then okay. we'll go back to that. So what is well, how would you define education and how would you define learning? I'm not sure I can define education. I'll define learning and maybe that will define education. So I think learning is the ability to take information, knowledge, facts and apply them to something that is useful, interesting, or relevant um, either to you or to your work or to making the, this world a better place to be. That's the learning piece. Mm. Yeah, education piece, I don't know how actually, actually, I don't know how I would define it. So I feel like learning is a dynamic, uh, it's a dynamic concept. Dy very dynamic, ongoing, uh, and, and it sh should be lifetime. 
Okay, mm. so I know in your work that you have uh, adopted a new system to assess learning that does not necessarily agree, like does not translate into the typical grading system that uh, convention that we grew up with, with in conventional education. Um, I want to ask you about your experience having adopted this and now having to face the reality of a college admission process that is still archaic and still uh, relies on standardized tests and because you still have to translate the grading system you have into the grading system that is adopted by colleges in general. How is that working out? So, so I think standardized tests are, are, are a, a point to look at, right? Because they, because what a, standard, a standardized test will say, this is what we think people need to know. How well do you know it, right? Um, and, and what they want people to know may have no relevancy, people may not be interested in, but it is, but it is a point of uh, what, is, what is your foundation knowledge of skills? Um, Which you will most likely forget about the second you're done your standardized test. Well, it, dep it depends on if, it's, if you use it again, if you find it relevant, if, it's, if, if you practice it in, in something that is real life. Uh, you know, more and more universities um, aren't just using standardized tests as an entry requirement or a guide. Is that uh, the it's majority? Still, it's, still, it's, still a, it's still part of it. Um, probably not. I think probably the... I don't, I don't know. I know many universities uh, look at, all right, what, is, what, is your, what are your AP scores? Uh, what are your SAT scores? But in addition to, um, you know, what else have you done? How are you interesting? So, so I'll tell you a story that was um, told to me by the head of another school. Mm. And so he was, he was talking to a, a college um, admissions person from MIT. Mm -hmm. And he said, right, we have a great school, but you've never taken a kid, one of our kids from our school, and we have a great school, and our kids score the highest on their uh, IB scores and SAT scores, but you don't take our, our students. How come? Mm. And the guy from MIT looked at him and said, because your kids are boring. How, did, how did, do they assess boring? Because, of, because we look at your scores and we look at what else they do, and they don't do anything. Right? They don't inspire us. They don't interest us. They don't... Because, because everybody that applies to MIT has the highest APIB scores and the highest SAT scores. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's just getting harder and harder, I think, for these kids to stand out and harder and harder to be different and to demonstrate how they're not boring. But I have attended a number of college orientation, like college admission orientation processes. And... Uh, Every time I go, I, I still leave with the impression that 85% of the, the strength of an application is in the standardized test. So yeah, I mean, we could sit and hypothesize and say, you know, that they're looking for interesting kids, but the reality is, or at least that's been my experience and the experience of people around me, ultimately, it's about how well you do on your SAT, how many APs you have, and how well you do on your APs. And, and also, it depends on. I think it depends on 
uh, where kids want to go to school or where parents want their kids to go to school because yeah. that's the whole <laughs> other piece that plays <laughs> yes. in here right yeah. um, is is what parents think they want for their kids and what the kids want for themselves oftentimes is it a, a uh, is it a conflict point? Which takes me back to uh, this whole other piece to the conversation. Um, you said in your job, you know, way, you know way too much. And I think, I, was it you who was uh, saying that, you know, it's like a, a job in a bank and a job at school are one of the hardest jobs because you really know things you don't really want to know about. So you could do everything right in those eight hours the kids spend at school and then the kids go home and everything could backfire. And then they can come back to you the next day with a clean slate and you'll have to start over again. How's that going for you? And do you feel like you're doing enough to, so you, you, there's many pieces for you to, to include in the process of learning. Um, how difficult is it? It is for you to work on the parent and the home piece. And is it different? I don't think it. I don't. I wouldn't say it's difficult. Challenging. Um, sometimes it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's challenging. Um, you've you've often heard me talk about the importance of the partnership between the school, the parents, and the kids. Collaboration. Because only if those three are working, uh, will will kids experience, um, you know, true true. Uh, holistic education. Holistic success. Um, I mean, we have we have forty-seven different nationalities uh, at our school. Every parent, pretty much, I would guess, has finished their high school education. Probably have gone to college, and so every one of those parents thinks that they know what education should be. Um, and so it's so for me it's trying to help them understand why we do what we do and that goes back to brain research like how how what is how does a how does a young adolescent's brain develop and what are we doing as a school that's appropriate to that development um, you know a couple of years ago we shifted our whole thinking around homework with elementary kids and to some parents it was shocking because we said we're not going to give your fourth grade child three hours of homework because it doesn't make any sense. What we want you to do and what will have the most impact is if you read to them and read with them. Tell me how you see rigor at school. What is rigor and how can parents know that the kids are um, getting a rigorous education? What, is, what does a rigorous education look like? Because I know most parents yeah. feel like a rigorous education is the load and how much pressure and stress the kids are under. And yeah. So what, is it, what does it look so like? I, I think, I think um, well, I'll tell you what rigor is not. Like, rigor is not five, five hours of homework every night, the drill and kill of math problems. Um, you know, I think, I think rigor is taking ideas and looking at them from multiple perspectives and digging into them deep and so it's so it's more depth than breadth deep thinking it's the deep thinking work um, and what it, what does that look like for a second grader is very different than what it looks like for 
for an 11th grader. And how does it look like to a parent who's not at school? Like, does my involvement like in assessing your program and deciding whether this is a, a good school for my kids and when I place my trust in your school, do I have yeah. to be shown that my kid is undergoing a rigorous program? Um, I think it's a good question. I, I think I think as a school we try to do a we try to do a good job of communicating to parents what our school is about. Right as you go through admissions, as the as you go through the admissions process, um, as you go through the hallways on tour, uh, in the orientation pieces, in the in the handbooks, I think we try to let parents know what the school is about. And we've had we've had um, we ask parents when they are interested in bringing our kids here. We ask them, what do you think about homework? Oh, I want my third grader doing five hours of homework every night. Detail then we'll say that, that will not happen at AC, at ACS. That will not happen. What we'll ask them, uh, what we'll ask you as parents is to read to your kids, and preferably father if you read to your kids. That's awesome. Um, do you think you're preparing the kids for hard work for grit? Because let's be probably, honest. I mean, probably. with this international system, these private schools, these kids are privileged. Yeah. Um, Are we preparing them? I don't think so. I don't know how we prepare them. Maybe five hours of homework um, would be it. Yeah, I wouldn't see that as, as grit, right? I would probably term that more as, uh, I don't know how I would, how I would describe that, right? It, it's because, because five hours of homework is just mind numbing. And everything we know about the brain and research on the brain um, it's just counterproductive. So Larry, as an educator, do you read the same books as uh, you know, other educators? But I'm wondering, because you know, I mean, I go out with my friends and I sit with friends and, and I'm silent usually, believe it or not, occasionally, when their kids have to do six hours of homework. I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my God, if my kids had to do this, they would fail. Yeah, you, you know, it depends. It depends on Is this controversial? Is this a question that, you know, educators are asking? Or is this a... You know, like a given, the issue of homework and time spent at home and the amount of work you overload the kids with. Because the argument I hear is that these kids need to be worked for, need to be prepared for real life. And real life, you know, they work, and I don't yeah. agree so, with any of So, real life is a really interesting concept. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, in, in your life or in the lives of anybody in this room, Right, when you walk out the door, how much homework are you going to have? Are you going to have five hours of, of homework that isn't tied to anything that, that you're interested in or relevant to? I mean, I, I, I think that's a really weak argument. Oh, we're, we're preparing, we're, we're giving our kids five hours of homework to prepare them for... Hard work, maybe. For, like, hard work. Stress. Okay, and, and, then, and then the question becomes... Um, with that homework, how many kids are at home on the phone with their friends going, well, what did you get for answer five? And what did you get answer three? Or, or the parents doing the homework. Or the parents doing the homework. Or the tutors doing the homework. This is a whole um, other... And so, so I, think, I think depending on what, your, what, your, what the head of school philosophy or the school philosophy or how well the school has helped parents understand homework, 
It would depend on... I want to ask you about reading, but before I ask about reading, I, uh, I know your kids are older, but let's say you have a kid now who's about to go into school. What would be the three uh, criteria that would help you make a decision? I, I think the most powerful thing would be to walk, to, to visit the school and see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. um, let's yeah. say my kid's going into third grade, yeah. right? I'd walk into a classroom. And see the kids. And I'd, and I'd watch what the kids are doing. Mm -hmm. I'd look at what was on, you know, the physical space, right? Um, was there student work up? And was it the work of the student and not the work of the teacher? And, and um, you know, the, the vocabulary of school, is it visible for kids to see? Uh, how are kids engaged? Like, are they working together? Are they working separately? What kind of hands-on work are they doing? What kind of conversations are they having? What kind of dialogue are they having? What kind of, you know, look at the teacher. Um, what is the, how is the teacher interacting and engaging with the, with the child? Right, those are, all, those are all signs that I would look for. Going back to reality, you, I mean, we speak about this often. We are not a reading culture. No, culture, I say worldwide. It's like reading, you know, I would say the majority of people I meet tell me that we don't read, we don't have time to read. Um, and yet you're still, you still insist that this is something that you have to instill in your kids. How do you, if you cannot embody this in your life, how can you expect that your kids will? I don't know, I guess um, my, my mom would always say, uh, you, you always have time for what you want to make time for, right? True. Agreed. So if, you want, so if you want to take time to read, you'll find the time. Um, and I think part of that goes back to providing, providing kids with literature that they, that they can connect with and be interested in. Irresistible. Right. And so, so part of it goes, you know, one of the biggest challenges in elementary school uh, is getting boys to read and write. Why and is that? Is it generally, does it it's because... Um, you know, a fourth grade boy, right, wants to write about, you know, guns and violence and sports and football and body parts and body noises and... Is that physiological, like in the brain development? Yeah, I think, think it's, I mean, I mean, it's probably a gross generalization, but, you know, boys are different than girls mm. and, and their, their brains develop. Uh, differently and they have different interests and you know it goes back to the chemical makeup and all kinds of things. How does that make reading a problem? Is finding well, so, what, so what happens, what has happened um, historically, and this I'm probably speaking more of, of American schools, most of the teachers in the elementary school are females uh. and so the females want their students to be writing about you know flowers and rainbows and nice things and they don't like the fact that boys are writing about you know fighting um, and so they squash them and so a boy wants to write about something that he's interested in and the teacher will say I don't like that you need to write about this and he'll be like fine I'll write about it but 
they lose interest. So at the back of your head, when you're hiring for elementary teachers, do you always prefer to hire men? No, not always. I like to have a mix, right? I think I'd like to have a mix of, of males and females. Um, it just adds a, uh, adds a perspective. But again, so you were saying that they write about this versus what about reading? Now I know that books are abundant and there's a million um, topics and uh, uh, so many options, not necessarily as many in Arabic as uh, unfortunately we have in English. Uh, do you think that's, uh, that's helping now, mm -hmm. create a culture of readers? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I see, I see a lot of, I, I see a lot of kids um, reading. They walk into a classroom. Our middle school has a designated time every day to read. And you walk up to the fourth floor and it's quiet because everybody's reading. Tell me about your, uh, so you say uh, the, the, as a school you sit and think about what kind of leaders and the student profile that we want to create. Um, you know, time where we just have to wrap up in a bit. Uh, what is the formula of a holistic young leader in your mind? What are the elements that make up um, uh, a leader that is living their fullest potential? What are the elements? When you give these, these kids their certificates? Yeah, I, th I think, um, I mean, for me, again, I go back to the student profile, right? If, we, if, we're, if we're graduating kids that exemplify our student profile, um, I mean, that's the greatest success for me. Have, so like do you give as, as, as much importance to kids who uh, value and respect their health and well-being as they do the... Yeah. I mean, for me, that's the holistic piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of our strategic priorities is about a healthy balance. And, and the work that we've done in the last four years to try to help students understand that, I think, has been, has been awesome. Substance use and abuse. Um, you know, healthy decision making, right? And that's where the parent piece comes in, because the, the you know, my my biggest challenge with our high school um, is trying to help uh, trying to help parents understand the adverse effect that uh, substance use, particularly alcohol, has on their kids. And now we have with the like, there's a whole other like we keep. Uh, being faced with new things like yeah, vaping, the vaping and, and the, right it's all yeah i think this is this needs another conversation um we're gonna wrap up but my last question to you would be what does your day look like, like what are your well-being um, uh, habits uh, do you take home do you take work home what, what does your day look like um they usually, I probably would put it into categories, which is communication, right? And that's email and meetings. Um, it's, it's the collaboration, uh, which, is, which is me connecting with people that impact my world, right? And, and so it's the principles, it's the nurse, it's things that uh, people I rely on to, to get things done and move us forward. Um, you know, it's the well-being piece. And, and in the last 
four years. Um, and I've said I need to make every effort at five o'clock to walk out of my office and go exercise. Uh, which I've been pretty disciplined to because that's a, that's a, a huge piece for my own mental well-being. Um, you know, I've, I've started doing yoga and meditation in the morning and that's just to, to kind of still my soul for the start of the day to say what do I want to accomplish. Um, you know, try to give back to the community in different ways and so it's, so it's trying to model the work that we, we're doing at the school. So I know for your meetings, we're going to wrap up, that's it. But I know for your meetings that uh, you have a theme for every meeting. My question to you, and you talk about crazy things, like people, if people look in, they, they think, oh my God, this is such a woo school. You know, I think you talk about gratitude. There's, you know, mm -hmm. like you have different topics. Does this go on elsewhere? I have been like out of elsewhere. the, like other institutions, like I haven't been in a formal, like corporation, corporate business world, Maybe ever, but I, <laughs> I mean, when if, and for us, we call it. It's just a grounding. Is so, this monthly? So usually, with every meeting we have, um, that are because they're organized organized around an adaptive schools model, um, we start with a grounding. So it's every meeting, right? So I meet with the principals every week, and my question to the to them every week is, "What were you grateful for this week?" Right? And then we all go around and share something we're, we're grateful for. Um, you know, every, every meeting, every more formalized meeting, it starts with some kind of grounding. Because what happens, um, you have a meeting and people are, if, you know, say there's seven people, those seven people are coming from seven different places. Bringing in everything. And they're bringing in everything, you know, the, that they had at the last meeting or whatever. Um, and if you want the meeting to be productive, you need to give people a minute just to take a breath, uh, to refocus their energy, to refocus their time, um, if you want them fully engaged. And so to be fully engaged, they have to have their mind clear and focused on uh, the task at hand. And one way to do that is just have a grounding to get everybody, you know, sometimes it's silly, sometimes it's serious. Um, in fact, at our educational leadership group meeting, the last grounding was, what are, you, what are you doing to promote a healthy lifestyle for you? I love this. Right? I mean, they're in there, it's just four or five minutes to say, okay. What are you gonna do when you retire? What's the one thing that's gonna take up most of your day? I have no idea. Really? I have no idea. Oh, not cowboy boots and work on a farm? Maybe on a farm, probably not cowboy boots. <laughs> um, hopefully something outside, hopefully something that interests me. That's awesome, thank you so much, Larry. Yeah, it was my pleasure.